0: Welcome to The Lawyer's Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 183 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Jeff Glover, who happens to be Sam's cousin, about new ways to think about the problems of substance abuse and mental health in the legal profession.
2: Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionists, Arag, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we'll tell you more about them later in the show. So for the last few weeks, we've been telling you about our YouTube show, Lawyerist Lens. If you haven't had a chance to watch it, you can find it on YouTube and on the front page of lawyerist.com. Check it out. And if you like what you see, please take a second to subscribe to the channel on YouTube. That way you'll get notified of new episodes and it will really help other people find the show. So thanks in advance.
1: And now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Gene Clausen from ARAG, and then we'll jump into Sam Glover's conversation with Jeff Glover. Here we go.
0: Hi Sam, so I'm Jean Clawson and my focus is Legal Industry Advocate with AROG, so what does that mean? What I do is I foster relationships with industry influencers, state and local bar associations, as well as incubators, and really with the goal in mind to provide these entities resources and opportunities to help them educate consumers on how to identify their legal needs, assert their rights, and really understand the value of working with an attorney. So with that, Sam, kind of lead right into what we found.
2: Yeah. Hi, Jean. So I'm excited to talk about your research into millennials and what millennials want, because I'm, I'm totally amused by generational research in general. Um, <laughs> but but you've done some interesting surveying and you found some stuff. So tell what do we need to know from the survey in general?
0: Yes. So, to give you a little background, we wanted to really help our attorneys and our clients that we work with understand how this large group in the U.S. really thinks when it comes to working with attorneys, choosing a benefit like legal insurance. And uh, just a reminder for everyone out there, millennials or the Gen Y, are those individuals born in the early 80s to the mid-90s? So these aren't kids anymore, right? These Mm -hmm. are the oldest millennials are in their 30s. And the most recent stat that I saw the other day, it's estimated there's 80 million millennials who have $200 in buying power. So Mm. these individuals are entering their peak earning and spending years. And so with that, That means they're also going into that time in their life where they'll start experiencing legal life events like buying a house, buying a car, getting married, having a child. So we really wanted to tap in to learn, you know, how can we align attorneys with that group better and help them when it comes to connecting, servicing, and really understanding that population. So We commissioned a study with Russell Research and did some in-depth interviews with over 1,000 millennials and people from previous generations as well. Then with that, we found some pretty surprising findings.
2: Yeah, what were some of the surprises?
0: So I would say the biggest surprise that we found is, you know, when you think of millennials, millennials grew up with technology, right? And so we discovered that 64%, when they want to work with an attorney, found that for those complex legal type matters, they wanted to work in person. So they wanted to communicate and work with an attorney directly in person which, you know, no one thinks of anymore, right? Everybody wants to do things online and, you know, virtually. And so for us, that was kind of an astonishing finding because here we are ready to, like, implement all the tech we can and, you know, create this robust connection. And we were like, oh.
2: I mean, it doesn't mean that lawyers should put the brakes on, you know, understanding and using technology, right? It means that in addition to making sure that you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's on having a website and a marketing plan and all that, the end of that should still be a one-on-one in-person relationship.
0: Exactly. That is exactly exactly what we were finding, Hmm. that millennials are still going to use tech, right? That's their norm. Mm -hmm. So they're still going to go exhaust all those other options. How they're going to find you could be online. How they're going to communicate with you could be through chat bots or emails. Even their in-person could be through Skype. Even though they want to connect face-to-face with an attorney and have that conversation, you can't forget or neglect All the other interactions that are happening that are applying technology or socializing from that perspective.
2: Any other surprises from the survey?
0: I think one of the other key surprises that we found was that millennials were more likely to ask their employer for a legal insurance benefit or a legal plan as compared to other generations. So they found that the millennials are more protection minded and cost conscious. So legal insurance really falls and aligns with being able to provide millennials an innovative benefit that's valuable to them. And so they're really challenging their employers when they're looking at their benefits package and deciding where they're going to spend their discretionary funds, that this is one of those areas that they would consider investing in and feel it's very important.
2: What about lawyers who don't really have millennial clients?
0: Oh, that's a good one. I get asked that question, Sam. So what I typically tell those attorneys is, one, those millennials probably aren't finding you. So uh, millennials, look. Some of the factors that we talked about and that came from the research as well were things like millennials want transparency, inclusivity, diversity, social responsibility, and collaboration. And so they're looking for and how they're identifying who they're going to connect with and work with, you know, through your web presence, through your socializing. Are you leveraging news hacking, you know, putting your publishing content that relates to current everyday events? So if you don't have millennial clients, remember, this is one of the largest, this is the largest consumer population, they're probably not finding you. So it means to really look at...
2: <laughs> That's on you, how, not on the millennials.
0: Yes, right. <laughs> what is your online presence and your socializing look like? And they really want that interactive socializing.
2: So if you want to know more about what Arag found in its study about millennials, you can go to aroglegalcom slash podcast. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash Podcast. Thanks so much, Gene.
0: Thanks. Great speaking with you, Sam.
3: I'm Jeff Glover. I'm a mental health therapist specializing around substance use and co-occurring disorders here in the Twin Cities.
2: And I should probably acknowledge that we have the same last name because we're first cousins. (laughs) Yes, we are. Yes, we are.
3: We try not to admit that in public, but here we are. So
2: this conversation started because I was at an ABA conference and I posted a picture to LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook that I had sketched about with an empty table with 10 chairs because we had just gotten done hearing about the ABA's kind of update on the mental health status of the profession and you responded to me because what I had said was it was a table of 10 chairs and I said at least two of the people at this table had a substance abuse problem or are alcoholics and you know we know the profession struggles with this and the ABA has some thoughts on it but I wanted to talk to you about kind of what's going on there and how do we kind of take it apart and think about it maybe we should get kind of your background out of the way you said you're a therapist but tell me more about what you do and how you treat people and things like that. Treating people makes it sound very clinical, so uh, it, no, it does, but go ahead a, and backpedal on that if term. you need to. Yeah. It's
3: a common term, and I think, you know, um, one thing that we'll certainly talk about more today and, and is sort of a, a, a broadening perspective on what we mean when we talk about problems, substance mm-hmm. use problems, mental health problems, and hopefully moving a little bit away or more, a lot away from the sort of older binary kind of issues, right? Like either I'm an alcoholic or I'm nothing, Yeah. I'm severely depressed or I have no problem.
2: That's what I kind of think because, you know, whenever you hear about this, it's like call the helpline or, you know, call the hotline. And I feel like first I would need to know that I have a problem. And, like, especially if I'm, like, a high-test litigator maybe I have drinks to calm down in the evenings. Like I drink a lot, but am I a substance abuser? Like that's what, that's where I kind of, I think we might be having trouble. Yeah. And
3: and we can get in, we can certainly, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that in regards to just sort of my history of working in the field. I mean, I've certainly worked within several different treatment centers and different levels of treatment. Yeah. Be them outpatient to more intensive outpatient to the more traditional residential programs. And now currently, I really do just individual therapy as a therapist. Yeah. And a lot of the work I do is around helping people come to recognize and name whether they have a problem to some degree and what degree and what can I or should I do about that.
2: Yeah. So step one is figuring it out. I think it
3: is. I mean, I think step one is really that difficult, like sort of self-realization. Maybe there's an issue here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people like the word issue better.
2: Yeah. (laughs) We're lawyers. We issue spot all the time. Okay. So what are you trying to find out? What is substance abuse and how do I know if I have it?
3: Well, and I, I usually do say a lot that I would prefer terms like substance use. Okay. Because we do. I mean, we, when we start talking about substance abuse, it gives so many people, especially lawyers, Something to argue about.
2: <laughs> no, that's a good point. Yeah, there's a black line this there. Is, I'm not abusing this. Yeah.
3: Look around me. Everyone else is doing this. You know, um, so it's, it's too easy to argue why it's not an issue. That makes sense. So when we start trying to assess whether something is an issue, like a substance use issue... You know, we usually start with, here's another term that gets really arguable, yeah. impairments. Okay. So we start looking at, well, where does this cause problems or challenges in my life? Now, it doesn't even take a great lawyer to start yeah. shooting that down.
2: But I like that because it's subjective. It's like, is it causing problems in my life? And we all get to kind of define that our own way, right? We have
3: to. Yeah. We have to. I think one of the things that becomes a challenge for us is that, and maybe particularly for lawyers sometimes, we're smart. Mm-hmm. We're good at being independent we're good at being in control we're good at giving advice not taking it we know yeah (laughs) and and so when it comes to defining or recognizing an issue or problem within ourselves it's really hard to see it Mm -hmm. because i don't see it you know it's it's I think lawyers are well-established that eyewitnesses are terrible.
2: Right.
3: (laughs) Human beings are terrible eyewitnesses.
2: Well, I think we also, like, it becomes our new normal, right? I might not be able to spot all that well the issues that are occurring in my life that are problematic because I deal with them all the time. It's just... I I just don't see it. Yeah.
3: Yeah you know, and the people who do start to see it aren't really naming a problem they become the problem. They're Mm -hmm. just a nag. My wife is just a nag. You know, um, she has her own issues. And so (laughs) so anyway, I, 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 to kind of come back to your question in regards to how do we start helping people see whether or not they may or may not have an issue. One of the things we do is we start looking at, yeah, this notion of impairments, which is very subjective. Hmm. And and it does require people, I think, sometimes to have a certain amount of humility as well, because it does mean then that I'm gonna, I need to do a hard look in the mirror sometimes and start seeing, well, okay, so where are there some areas where it does have some impact? And people always want to look at the big black and white issues. Well, I'm still getting my work done.
2: Yeah, I won a trial last week. I won a <laughs> trial. Look at look it, I'm killing it. Yeah,
3: and like, yeah, you are, and therefore you obviously are. You don't have the problem like the guy that lives out on the street. Going back to that notion of if the problem is going to be black or white, either I'm an alcoholic and I look like the guy that lives on the street who's homeless, well then yeah, clearly you don't have a problem, so keep doing, keep going, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and therefore then we're not addressing the problem, we're not addressing the issue.
2: I suppose if I'm wondering if I have a problem, then I probably ought to start talking to somebody about it.
3: Yes, so you know, when, when we start thinking about, if I'm willing to even entertain talking with somebody about whether I may or may not possibly have a problem.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: I need to talk to somebody. If we're terrible witnesses, then why should I trust my own brain? Yeah, My own brain's simple brain science tells us with confirmation bias and all sorts of different things that I'm not going to be my best, the best judge of my own assessment. Right. So I need to find someone that I can trust And I think particularly in lots of professions, but certainly the law profession, you know, the issue of confidentiality and privacy is really important.
2: Yeah, that occurs to me too. Like I, you know, I realize people don't, you're afraid that somebody's going to find out that you might have a problem and that's a sign of weakness and, or, or just pride. (laughs) Yeah,
3: (laughs) either way. I mean, it's, it starts to address the overall stigma in society that we have, but probably more so in certain professions. So yeah, we need to find somebody that I can trust and that is going to be private. Yeah. That it's going to stay in this circle because without that, I'm really not going to be able to be really honest. And secondly, I think part of that trust has to also include that the the person I'm talking with, and when I say knows what they're talking about, obviously that's important, but it sort of goes back to that stigma issue. Historically in our society, we have a notion that problems are black and white with alcohol. I'm either I'm alcoholic or I'm not. And certainly, historically, in the treatment world, there there has been more of a tendency towards um, I think there are, uh, people have been fearful to go get an assessment for for substance abuse because they're convinced that the bias of the therapist is simply going to be, well, of course, they're going to find a problem. Yeah. It's their job to find well, a problem.
2: I, I'm, I, yeah. And so I think I see where you're going here because this was one of my favorite parts of when we had lunch to talk about this is you're like... You try to rule everything else out first, right? Yeah.
3: Well, and I think for, for some of us, you know, who don't want to have a problem, mm-hmm. my brain is already going to start finding every reason why I don't have a problem, which is why I don't really need to go talk to anybody in the first place. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, someone comes in and, 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 and wants to talk to me, and I know that they already don't want to have a problem, and I don't blame them. Heck, I don't yeah. want them to have a problem.
2: But something is clearly not quite right in their life, and the, the reason why, oh, that's why they're coming to see you. Right. Exactly (laughs)
3: right. Exactly right. So, yeah, we want to start ruling out other potential factors. Yeah. Uh, And I think sometimes it's a good way to get started. Mm -hmm. Usually before someone would come to see me, they've probably already in their own head or in their own kind of, in quotes, heart of hearts, started to have their like, yeah, you know what? This isn't something's off. Whether other people are noticing it or not, they're noticing it. And there's your subjective factor. There's your okay. there's some impairment. And maybe that's taking forms of maybe kind of depression, lower mood, feeling, you know, lower self esteem, feeling crappy about themselves, they're confident being shaken, maybe it's having a hard time getting out of bed, staying focused, all sorts of things, more anxious. Feeling worse about themselves, more fearful to go into trial or
2: meetings. So you're trying to you're trying to dig down and find what is the source of the problem you're having, and you're without assuming that it's the, the drinking could be another symptom, right? It, like you know, might be drinking because it. you're depressed. You might be drinking because your nutrition sucks, or because your relationship is off, or whatever. It could be all sorts of things. So it's a nice thing to start with. You know, I mean, even if I said to somebody
3: before you even came to talk to somebody, well, then try to cut down.
2: Yeah. Right. That's the simple thing. I mean, that's the simplest thing, right? <laughs> I
3: mean, obviously it starts to become a problem because most people have already done that. Right. Right. And for whatever reasons, it, it worked a certain amount of times, but their batting average wasn't great. Or let's just say that 9 out of 10 times they were able to control or manage their drinking, but that one time they ended up getting into trouble or they had a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's that's called a problem, even if it's the one time out of 10. So anyway... Yeah. I mean, you know, you want to look at all the different factors. It's not unique to the law practice and people who work really hard don't always live the healthiest lives um, in terms of whether it's nutrition, whether it's exercise, whether it's social connection. So, yeah, I mean, I want to run down the list and and, uh, make sure that, in fact, well, well, let's look at all these different factors. And for a lot of people who are fearful around substance use problems, it is a good way to start.
2: Is it possible, I'm taking you on a tangent again, but is it possible that there is just something about being a lawyer that the solution to the drinking would have to be finding a different job? You know, when I, when I was practicing full time, um, I was really stressed out all the time and I didn't fully realize it for like three months after I sold my practice and moved on, just how stressful I had been every single day. And I'm wondering if we just kind of have an unhealthy profession that leads people to, to more drinking. And so maybe maybe it's not necessarily just about treating drinking in our profession. We actually need to change the way we work and the, what, what work looks like for lawyers.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think people would probably say that about a lot of professions, but certainly Den-
2: dentists too. I mean, clearly, right. they're they're the other ones that have th- these rates of alcoholism and suicide.
3: Well, I mean, there's a term that gets used a lot of times as well in different, not just the lawyer profession, right, but of terminal uniqueness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, we love to believe that we're right, unique, right? Right, <laughs> right? And the therapists were the same way. Right? Okay. I mean, yeah. it's like physicians. You know, they they're the, they make the worst patients, right? Yeah. Because I shouldn't need this. I know all this. I got this covered. And uh, obviously, that's not the case, at least most of the time. So I. I think for some people, one of the solutions might be getting out of their profession Mm -hmm. or figuring out ways to set better boundaries on their profession or do it differently. And see if that helps. And that certainly can be, you know, there are certain external factors that are worth examining and looking at. If I'm trying to figure out whether there's, I have a substance use issue. Yeah. Some of those external factors might be things like, yeah, is there something about my the law practice that I'm in and that that just makes it conducive for me to abuse substances. Well, sure. Okay. Well, then we can try one thing. The extreme version then is, yes, quit your job and do something different. (laughs) The other one might be, all right, well, um, maybe we need to look at some different types of um, boundary setting skills to, it's kind of almost like a coaching job. Well, then how do we help you set better boundaries so that you can continue to do your work within this profession and not have some of those negative effects. Like it's like having a raincoat and an umbrella. Yeah,
2: stop taking work home, <laughs> you, right. know, you know. Those go home at seven things. o'clock instead right. of 10.
3: <laughs> yep. Start noticing what your stress levels are like. You didn't yeah. notice it until you were really done. Yeah. Right. And most people don't because we're inside of it. Uh, and sometimes we need help to kind of notice that. Yeah. I'm often amazed, particularly with men, um, at our lack of ability to recognize how even physiologically stress shows up.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. And we
3: just don't notice it. Hmm. So um, that, and to your point, looking at the other wellness factors in our life, the what's my nutrition been like? Um, what's my exercise been like? For some people who are hard driving, sometimes the exercise bit is even more extreme Mm-hmm. You know, they're on top of working 60 hours a week. They're also training for triathlons another right. 70 hours a week or whatever, you know. And so there's so,
2: so counterintuitively less exercise might actually be healthier for some people. <laughs> well, I don't know yeah. exactly. exactly.
3: <laughs> the guy with the donut and the cigarette saying, see, I've been telling you this for <laughs> yeah. years.
2: So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but before we go, I just want to observe something that popped into me while we were talking, which is that if this podcast is typical, somewhere between three and 5,000 people will listen to it over the next few weeks, which means that, what is that, up to 1,000 people listening to this podcast need to go see someone that is a sobering thought. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> um, said. And so if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you stay with us after the sponsor break, but just consider whether or not you are the kind of person who might need to start talking to somebody about whether or not you have a problem. So we'll be right back.
1: Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay.
2: Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's remote receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more delighting your callers in English and Spanish just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. Ruby integrates with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com lawyerist2018.
1: Alexis Neely has been training lawyers on the new law business model she created to build her million-dollar law practice for more than 10 years. Over that time, she saw that some lawyers were hugely and immediately successful with it, and others spun their wheels, never getting anywhere. Just recently, she decided to figure out what made the difference. After reviewing all of her clients' successes and failures, as well as her own, she identified five shifts that were the common denominator among all the lawyers who today have high six- and seven-figure law practices they love. To learn what she discovered and apply it to your life and law practice, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist.
2: Hey, one more thing before we get back to the conversation. If you haven't already taken the small firm scorecard and you are a solo or small firm lawyer, do it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Look, you listen to this podcast, so you must know the practice of law is changing in important ways. And sooner or later, you are going to feel the effects of those changes in your practice if you aren't feeling them already. So what's your plan? If you are like most of the lawyers we've met over the years, even if you understand the trends shaping the past, present, and future of law practice, you probably don't have a plan. You may not even be sure where to start. So that's why we put together the Small Firm Scorecard, to help lawyers understand what they need to do to position their firm to be successful in the future. It's a free self-assessment, 50 questions for small firms, 40 for solos. The questions cover your goals, strategy, systems, marketing, client service model, finances, and people and staffing. It only takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, you'll know exactly what you need to work on based on your own assessment of how you're doing on each item. Like I said, it's free, it takes about 10 minutes, and you'll end up with a to-do list to prepare your firm for the future. So take it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Okay, we're back. And so, as I left us on kind of a heavy note there about the profession and about our listeners. And so, Jeff, are there some good online resources where people can do research? And we'll include all the links in the comments. But I feel like that is usually step one for everyone now is doing a little self evaluation online.
3: It's a great place to start. I mean, even necessarily before we go see somebody, Mm -hmm. which I I, look at the end of the day, I, I do think that that's a good idea because most of us from just basic brain science. We, we do need a, a brain outside of our own to help sort of decide some of the issues. And our, our ability
2: to self-evaluate is bad.
3: It's poor. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yes. You know, one of the first recommendations I oftentimes make is um, there's a, a website that many people are probably familiar with, um, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers. Yep. But even the American Bar Association has resources mm-hmm. on there. They've got their tabs that talk about whether it's under the the wellness sections or whether yeah. it's specifically around self assessments for substance use problems or even men and or mental health problems, depression, anxiety and the like. So those are those are some of the easiest resources for lawyers because it's well, there you go. And it's very lawyer specific, which I think people find really comforting. And I think it is important for that. Certainly, there are plenty of other sites that I guess I can just maybe I'll give to you later and you could put them up. Yeah, let's Um,
2: let's stick all those links in the show notes so people can start their research right here.
3: Yeah, I think. But I do think it's really important. And and I think it's important to keep in mind that, again, maybe particularly for lawyers, I mean, to pick on lawyers, but (laughs) knowing that when we go to start asking ourselves some of these questions keeping in mind that our own brain is probably going to be biased towards why this is not true for me.
2: Yeah, because it's bad news. You're going to try to avoid this bad news. It's bad news. And that's the stigma that we live
3: under. We live under the fact that if I have a substance use problem or I have a mental health problem, that's bad and it means something bad about me.
2: Except I, I would say that the flip side is you can't come out the other side of this bad news until you acknowledge it and start addressing it. Ah, that's exactly you know? right.
3: Look, I mean, I, as I've said before, there's two problems here. One problem is there's a substance use and mental health problem in the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second problem, and probably the bigger problem, is the fact that it's not being addressed. Yeah. And why is it not being addressed? Well, there are barriers to that, but probably the biggest one really just comes down to the stigma because yeah. it means something bad. Yeah, there was a time,
2: but it shouldn't. Like a fifth to a third of us are suffering from this. There was a time their families are suffering from it, right? Or
3: hopefully not. But even sometimes our clients might be. Yeah. But there was a time when people didn't want to say cancer. It was the c word. Why? Because there was a stigma. It meant something bad. Thankfully, medically we've moved beyond that, mm-hmm. and I think that's been part of the movement uh, within the substance use and mental health field. Let's how do we move beyond this stigma? That it means something bad, some sort of moral weakness or some sort of, you know, there's something wrong with you. So if you do have a problem with right. substance use, you better hush up and never say anything because my God, someone might think bad of you.
2: I mean, I, and I feel like as a society, I hope we are starting to learn that we need to move past that just as a profession, as a society, because like we know that that depression is a normal thing. Yeah. Right. A ton, tons and tons and tons of people have mental health issues. We we have to stop stigmatizing it because Everybody deals with it. And the same is true for substance abuse. Like it's actually a normal state of being that a lot of people have. It can't be stigmatized because lots of people are dealing with it. And we need to kind of open it up and make it fine and normal to have those problems because people need to get that fixed. I mean, imagine if your firm, if a fifth of the people at your firm just um, had to be out because they had to duck out and couldn't deal anymore, right? Um, You need to be helping them and providing resources for them to get better because. Um, otherwise, you're not going to have a firm.
3: Right. No, it's a good point, Ren. I mean, I don't have them in front of me, but there's also plenty of statistics out there where they project the level of negative impact people's substance use problems may have on overall workflow. Right. And certainly in law firms where we want to squeeze as much efficiency as we can. If one of my lawyers is living an unhealthy life, which may include substance use, it may include aspects of depression and anxiety, all of which can be intermingled. Yeah. Um and I'm not getting them help.
2: Right. Well, in one sense, I'm <laughs> shooting
3: myself in the foot. Yeah. Or if I think they have a problem, but you know, I want to let's keep it hush and just deal with it. And and I, I just it seems well intuitive. Uh,
2: there's some evidence that shows that we only have about five hours of productivity a day in us anyway. And so if you're not doing well in those five hours, just because you're trying to stretch it out and build ten hours in a day, like you're starting out with your your five good hours are not great. And then, you, you know, what are you going to do with the, the rest of the time you're trying to bill? It's just, you know, maximize your efficiency. This is what Silicon Valley is all about, right? People are microdosing mushrooms and things in order to gain a strategic advantage for their five hours a day. I mean, which I think is probably one of the
3: problems. It's <laughs> probably one of the problems I would think even in the law profession. I mean, mm-hmm. we know that um, for some from different studies. Actually, one of the most abused drugs is more of a stimulant line right. along with, right, so a lot of cocaine use.
2: Performance enhancing brain things. Because yeah.
3: I need to maintain more focus over a longer period of time and therefore it gets justified. Mm-hmm. You don't understand. You don't understand, number one, um, here's the terminal uniqueness part, right? Yeah. Not just with lawyers, but you don't understand what I have to deal with every day. You know, if you had to, to deal with what I had to deal with, you'd drink too.
2: Which could be true. I mean, we, we kind of started there, like that could be true, So stop dealing with that. Right. (laughs) But. Or or when it comes to things
3: like then needing something like cocaine, right? I mean, given what the pressures I have, I need this to maintain. And fine, again, that may be true. And let's just say that there are certain people who can do that for a while. Mm -hmm. Most human beings at some point, there's kind of a sustainability factor, right? Like at some point, that's probably going to stop working. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, we, we live in a world then where we want to sort of hold up those people who can do it. Yeah. And then everyone else who can't do it as well, just ought to feel really crappy about themselves. And here comes the depression and anxiety and probably an increase in substance use. And hopefully we want to be able to help get some support because it's, it's this unrealistic thing that we're we're feeling crappy about a standard that we're trying to maintain.
2: And anyone who's done a trial or or pulled all, you know, done gone through finals in college, whatever, like you go you go 110% of your abilities for a short period of time, right? Like if you're in trial, you're sleeping two hours a night, you're working your, your ass off nonstop for that trial, but at the end of it, you're gonna sleep for 16 hours, right? There's a crash. There's a crash. You you cannot maintain a drug habit or an alcohol habit forever. There will be a crash. And so you need to address it, right? I mean, it, it's it's not the same as a trial because that's a finite period of time. You can sleep it off. You're good.
3: But One of the challenges that we run into is, is oftentimes a common notion as well that I'm just doing this now. I'll right. stop doing it at some point. I think
2: that's what I'm kind of getting at is like, you're just sort of going full steam ahead and it's never gonna stop until you hit a wall.
3: And there's a little bit of normal human self-delusion there. Mm-hmm. And we know this from more neuroscience that we, you know, we think we're so much more in control of our brains than we actually are. And so a lot of times we'll say things that are very good and true statements. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll curb this or I'll quit doing this at some point. I just need it now. So the interesting thing about um, when we talk about whether it's substance use problems or anxiety or depression, they tend to be progressive, mm. so they tend to grow. And when we put it within a simple brain, you know, neural context, it's like, well, of course, of course, it only grows.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Part of my brain likes pleasure. Yep, it gets a taste <laughs> of it. It likes to avoid discomfort yep. and pain. Give me all the endorphins. So and... the chances are, and what usually happens is, these problems tend to just grow on themselves to some degree. And I think that that also makes it hard for people to start recognizing and addressing when there's a problem because. Number one, we're on the inside of it, so it's hard to see, and it's kind of like the like the boiling of a frog, right? When you're when you, when you're in the water, yeah. I don't know if this is actually true or not, but people <laughs> love to use it as an example. It right? sounds
2: like a cruel thing to test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you
3: know, it, we'll, we'll do that later on. Yeah, but anyway, we, we just we don't notice it. We don't notice the progression of it. Sometimes our family members do. Yeah. Um, you know, our divorce rates start going up. Our mm-hmm. unhappy kids rates start going up. And we just don't notice it.
2: One of the things that I brought to our discussion is, you know, this, I I realize that this is becoming more widely acknowledged. And I don't want to, I don't want to like, I'm not here to shit on AA or anything, but the alcohol anonymous, like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. It feels very black and white binary. And it sounds like what we're acknowledging at this point, at least you and me, and I hope the profession, it sounds like, is that there is a lot more than that going on. There are different kinds of substance use issues, abuse. There are different ways to treat it. But what about this idea that you're an alcoholic, and then you always have to call yourself an alcoholic? Is that true too?
3: Well, it's a, I mean, it's a great question, right? Yeah. And for anybody who's just questioning whether or not they might have a substance use problem, I just feel like you know that's just way down the line.
2: Is it okay? You know,
3: like let's not worry about that right now. Let's just figure out if. There is a a problem or an issue. And if you're talking about it, if you're asking these questions, there probably is some level, some degree. Mm -hmm. And if we can agree... But I feel like
2: like it's like a scarlet letter, right? Like, I think that people do worry about it now is oh, crap, if I'm an alcoholic, then I have to walk around with a big A on my forehead for the rest of my life. Right.
3: And I think it's a good reason to get out. But I feel yeah. like a lot of the work I do with people is is, is trying to, number one, present sort of a spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a level of degrees to at least get the idea. And my yeah. idea, by the, the idea behind that isn't that we've got to get everybody over to the, you know, the end right. a, <laughs> a degree. Once yeah. a problem, always a problem. I don't know. It's kind of like saying, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. If if, if someone's level of substance use problem is that systemic and that chronic and that bad, then yeah, that may have, end up their new be, normal. Maybe they, That might have to be a solution. Yeah, there are plenty of people, even in, in the um, in the substance use treatment world, in the addiction science world, it's pretty common because there are plenty of other treatment modalities and resources uh, for people to to uh, deal with even if someone came to me and like, Jeff, I have a problem. I've got a problem. I'm, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I don't want to go down the AA route. Okay. Look, yeah. there are plenty of other things that okay. we can do to help somebody get help. It doesn't have to be that. And I think that's important for people to know.
2: Maybe we could conclude, uh, not quickly, probably, but by talking about kind of, how do you, how do you cope with cutting back taking a break or dealing with it within a profession that is so almost all of our social events have drinking involved. Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea of it's hard to, I think, because there's always alcohol around and it's sort of central to the way lawyers socialize. What's the best way to approach cutting back in that environment? Like if you are trying to do that, can I stop for a week? You know, and then all, but all of a sudden there's three networking events and they're all at bars or something.
3: Yeah. I think one of the first things that we have to address, and again, this is another thing that, that we com- I commonly address mm-hmm. with, with clients is that is, we have to start looking at some of the underlying beliefs about it. And it, in many ways, it takes us back to some of our earlier drinking experiences in high school. If I'm not drinking, number one, everyone notices. Mm-hmm. And number two, it means something bad. Therefore, I'm
2: not going to be included. And
3: is that really true? Probably not. No. No. I mean, put the lawyer <laughs> up on the stand, right? Yeah. Let's cross-examine,
2: right? And you and can the- always order a club soda and a lowball I mean, glass right? and nobody because will if
3: know. It, if it honestly means at your law practice meeting that if you don't have a drink in your hand that that means you're going to be a less effective lawyer and the other lawyers are going to literally smell weakness and eat you alive or exclude you from the rest of that meeting then yeah, you might want to think about a different, <laughs> a different line of work. Yeah, but the, I mean, I think anyone would would bet that, of course, yeah. that's not the case. And so we have to start challenging that because if the if the bigger issue is not that there's alcohol at these meetings, it's this. I don't feel like I cannot drink.
2: Yeah, and I'm that might that might be on you. Well, right? that's an
3: issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. does it mean that? does that mean all of a sudden that you're an alcoholic, you have a problem? Well, look, no, let's, again, let's not go down that. You know, <laughs> right. you know? But it, it starts to speak to one earlier level of the problem, which is simply like my own mindset tells me that I have to be doing this because if I don't, I'm going to feel more awkward or I'm going to be convinced that other people see this as being something wrong. And, you know, the response, sometimes that can come back to us is like, my gosh, how old am I?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm 45 years old. I'm not 15. You right. know? I'm not 18 at yeah. some party. And it's always fair to say, nah, I, gotta, I got my, my kids' uh, soccer game later. I don't want to show up with uh, booze on my breath. Or, you awesome. know, there's all, it's easy to make excuses and you probably don't even need to.
3: And we probably don't, right? But somehow, at least from my experience of helping people with this, it's almost like we need to have this sort of external um, conversation that our own brain hears, and I think there's some brain science yeah. that backs this up, yeah. right? Like I can kind of think this and know this, but it's not until I really talk about it and hear myself say it that I'm like, oh yeah, you know what?
2: <laughs> I, I should probably, yeah, that's right. I have that feeling a lot, where it until I name it, you know, like until I acknowledge that there is a thing, it's you can't deal with it. No, so. I think that's,
3: I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's so so true. So yeah, I guess to your question, I mean, but I think that's an important aspect of people. Trying to figure it out, and if that means then that yeah, I'm going to try to cut back for a week, or I'm going to try to or a month. Most people can do that. The one of the things that starts defining levels of substance use problems isn't somebody's ability to stop for a week or a month or longer. And I have plenty of people that say, Jeff, I can't have a problem. I've stopped for a month. See, I that, give it I Lent every year. I give it up. It's this is not an issue. That's
2: good to hear because for a long time I thought the definition of substance abuse was you can't quit when you want to.
3: Sure. Which can be in terms of more extreme yeah. levels in, or, or drug use or, um, you know, problems with pornography or problems with shopping or, you know, no. all sorts of other sort of process addictions. And we haven't even gone down that road. <laughs> right. Time. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in, in some forms, yes, that would certainly be a, a problem. That uh, obviously needs to be addressed, right? Then I mean, it's a problem. Yes. But
2: short of that, it could still be a problem. You may be using irresponsibly, or other issues may be cropping up.
3: And one of my issues that I try to try to help people with a lot of times too is like, look, we're trying to prevent problems. Yeah. You know, I think people sometimes are convinced. Like, I don't want to go talk to somebody because I'm convinced that they're just going to tell me I need to go to treatment. And number one, I don't want to go to treatment. Number two, I don't have time to go to treatment. I'm mm-hmm. busy. Like, fine. all the more reason to start talking about it now. I feel sometimes like my job is it. I'm 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 a believer in treatment. I believe treatment works. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I'd I'd love for my goal to be to keep you from needing to go to treatment.
2: Right. Right. I mean, that's not because I don't like treatment. Or want, <laughs> I don't, look, if it, if it's to the level that you need treatment,
3: yeah, go to treatment. But I don't want you to go to treatment. Let's prevent it.
2: That's a good point. How do people find a therapist that will help them in the way that they need to be helped? Uh, you know, I know with you know friends and family who have dealt dealt with depression, like. Finding a therapist is the first mountain you have to climb, and it's probably harder than it should be, but it, it is what it is. So. I think,
3: yeah, I think what, that's a great question. I think one of the bigger issues that comes up for people again goes back to that privacy and wanting to make sure that it's yeah. confidential. And I mean, I think anyone should know. I hope that when it comes to the profession of mental health therapy, substance abuse therapy, that there are laws in place right. to to maintain. Uh, confidentiality and privacy so but then secondly yeah we want to find somebody who understands there are a lot of great resources out there and I would I would actually send people back even towards lawyers concerned for lawyers or the aba I mean for instance lawyers concerned for lawyers at least here in Minnesota they've got a list of, of EAP resources what is the EAP EAP is the employee employee assistance program okay and I know for instance the the lawyers concerned for lawyers um, here in Minnesota at least has a really robust, um, they do a lot of really good work mm-hmm. to find providers in the community who they trust and who understand. They know these issues. Yeah. Um, and, and in
2: the context of lawyers, in, especially. In the context of lawyers. And i yeah. one step before that.
3: And again, I'm not here sure plugging necessarily lawyers, Concerned for Lawyers, but this a great organization. Yeah. But one of the other things that they do an amazing job with is they have sort of kind of a peer support model. Mm. So even before contacting a lawyer, you can also talk to somebody there who probably is a lawyer, yeah. has had issues or concerns themselves, and you can confidentially talk to another person who gets it. Yeah. They're not going to diagnose you, you know, so, so it's, it's another... <laughs> they,
2: they are stigma proof because yeah. they're dealing with it themselves. Yeah, yeah right. And it's, it's another
3: way to get a, a perspective outside of my own brain um, in this case, particularly from another lawyer or a judge um, to, to just help me get a better sense, yeah, um, kind of ease into the whole notion. So that's one of my first recommendations within the law practice. You know, look for resources around um, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers or ABA around employee assistance programs. And a okay. lot of hmm. law firms would have that. And usually those things are employee assistance programs essentially are... Um, programs that are designed for uh, people who are under that insurance plan or that a- that agency to be able to get, let's just say, four or five sessions free to kind of assess whether or not there's a concern.
2: And I suppose if you are an employer, like, make sure that your people know that these things are available to them. Uh, please do. Make sure you reassure the people who work for you that... You aren't going to stick. You're not going to come down on them. They're not going to lose their job. They're going to lose their job if they don't address it. Probably (laughs) one way or another. (laughs) But if they do address it, you you're not going to punish them for that. That's part of being a good employee and employer.
3: And there's and there are certainly laws out there that protect that. Of course, but uh, doesn't mean
2: people actually do it. I know exactly.
3: (laughs) I'll let you handle that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I, that's my first my first go-to. If people are going to start looking around online to look for therapists, there's a couple of different things to look for. Um, I think looking for a therapist, making sure that I have, I tend to like therapists who are what we call sometimes duly licensed. So there they're can be licensed in both like alcohol and addiction type counseling, but also um, specifically mental health counseling. So there are different licensures yeah. for that. Um, but in a case like that, you're getting somebody who not only has a really solid understanding of substance use problems, but also of mental health problems. And the, and, and having somebody gotcha. who understands both of those at the same time is really important.
2: Well, and uh, you know, as we as we kind of talked about earlier, like there is often sort of a bundle of issues that some of which are substance abuse issues, some of which might be all kinds of things, and mental you, health. Yeah, yeah. And,
3: we, and we want to help you sort that out. Yeah,
2: and there are plenty of people that come to me who really
3: don't want to have a substance abuse problem because somehow that seems a lot worse than depression. Mm -hmm. They would much rather be diagnosed with depression
2: Yeah. I like the way we've been talking about that because in the context of actually having a law practice, we talk about this, like we treat legal problems, but we really need to think of ourselves as being dual licensed to treat people's problem. People with legal problems inevitably have other shit going on. I think we obviously we're thinking about substance issues, substance use in the same way. Um, There's a, there's a bundle of things going on and you want to look for somebody who can help you with the whole bundle.
3: Yeah, I think that's really important. Did
2: I forget to ask you any questions that we should have covered today? That's a great question. Sam. <laughs> I should use it as my closer on every podcast, but I don't always remember. No, I mean you
3: know what? We really didn't talk much about treatment in the yeah. general sense. But I, I I mean, so in one sense, we were kind of talking about the front end, mm-hmm. um, almost making the assumption of that that the majority of people who, for instance, in this case might be listening. Are kind of on the fence and unsure. Yeah. I suppose and,
2: that may not be accurate. Well, that is I an assumption. And I yeah.
3: certainly would encourage anyone who's unsure or on the fence or having questions to do some of their initial research, to contact maybe a peer support, something like a mm-hmm. Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, or or look for an individual therapist who might be better better um, be able to kind of help start us, you know, figuring it out and assessing is this more depression or anxiety, is this more substance use, what are the different things that we can rule out to help this problem not get worse. right? Uh, and then from there, you can kind of start moving up the chain. I mean, if, if, if there was someone that was listening today that was like, look, I know I have a problem. I, right. I have, this is clear as a bell. I have a family history of it. I know it. I'm not lying to myself anymore. Well, then there there are different levels of then treatment as well. And some of those treatments can be a sort of, you know, immediately our, uh, our sort of stigma, and the way we think about it was always the sort of the 28-day Right, and that that's really changed in in many many ways. I mean, there's sort of some of that model. We always jump towards the side of the spectrum. That's the you know I need to go away for 30 days. Yeah, and that still exists, and that's not the the worst thing in the world. But that's not usually the first place we start.
2: Well, and also you know I'm getting this from cable TV, but like my understanding is there's also a lot of potential issues in that world of uh, rehab clinics and things where it's you're not you're not necessarily getting a good one, so you're going to want to Go through a therapist with a reputable license rather than just looking up rehab clinics on the internet. Probably,
3: I would highly rec- yeah. recommend that. Yeah, and I don't. mean like I said, I I'm I believe that treatment works. Yeah. I wouldn't do this work if I didn't.
2: But not everybody's actually doing treatment. But I think. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly there's been are.
3: some a lot of negative press out there, and there's also look there's also a lot of negative um, or a lot of we have a lot of misperceptions about what in one sense recovery needs to look like and can look like. I mean, mm-hmm. unfortunately, if someone genuinely has an addiction or a substance abuse problem or substance use disorder and, and, and in a severe way, well, based on current research and the current way we treat that, it's very possible that they may have to do more than one treatment. Yeah, um, It's very difficult to treat. Um, relapses tend to be a part of it, mm-hmm. uh, of, of the overall long-term recovery process. And so, but people see that as a failure. They might see, I went to treatment, I was sober for a year. And then I went back to using it, and therefore it was a, it was a failure. Well, right. You know, I, I, we have to be careful how we define that because this is a very it's severe long-term problem.
1: It's not a cold. Not a cold. <laughs> you
3: don't, you don't is, just take some orange juice and then you're better. No, this is not easy to treat, and it does require sometimes a lot of long-term. And, and, and we're really moving away from the sort of like episodic treatment model, right? Well, I did my 28 days. Now I'm done. Yeah. I'm right back at it. Well, now we really know that research shows that the longer we have people with with more severe substance use disorder problems or addiction problems, mm-hmm. the longer we have them in some sort of, in quotes, treatment environment, the better. And But that changes over time. Let's just say that someone started off in a residential program and they did that for, which could vary. It doesn't have to. Be the 28 days. We try to do it based on client need. Right. There's nothing magical about 28 days. <laughs> and then stepping them down to different levels of more intensive outpatient. Hmm. Uh, some people, depending on their level of substance use problem, can start more. We'll call in the middle. They might start, and it's more common in fact that people are recommended to start their first treatment as an intensive outpatient. So in other words, that can look like anywhere from maybe let's say two to. Five days a week, maybe three hours a day, where you're you're in treatment,
2: but and you're what, still, like, still what at if, home. What does that mean? Home. Like when you're when you're in treatment, are you at a clinic? Are you at a? I mean, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Good question. I mean, uh, for some reason, I, straight jackets and hospital gurneys are what are coming up in my head, and I'm sure that's not accurate, but.
3: Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, it's
2: not. Uh, <laughs> well,
3: and in, like in an, in, in, if we take an example of an intensive outpatient program, mm-hmm. they can range anywhere from hospital based to, uh, you know, treatment agencies that might be in a strip mall mm-hmm. uh, down the street. and And ultimately, they, you would, the, the clients would come in. They, they tend to be more group based. Okay. So there'll be
2: like a talk therapy session. More of a talk therapy
3: and, and they always include some education, which we all need when it comes yep. to the substance abuse <laughs> and the substance use, substance use problems. So getting a better insight level around what's going on and the impacts this is having. Um, we start looking at our thinking patterns. We start mm-hmm. looking at some of our behaviors, very common cognitive behavioral therapy right. techniques. Um, a lot of use of mindfulness meditation. And so that, that's... Uh, that,
2: none of that sounds bad. You know, these are such <laughs> core principles that every human being at some
3: right. point is already doing or needs to do to some level. It's, it's, one, it's kind of the gold standard when we talk about best practices of treating things like depression and anxiety and substance use is included in You're that. trying to
2: build new habits, new understanding, new Completely. awareness. Completely. Yeah.
3: And if people come into an intensive outpatient program and they'll probably, it will benefit them. If if it turns out that the substance use problem is, is even more severe, then they probably will continue to struggle with that. And then, then we start looking at, well, maybe they need a higher level of care. Yeah. And that's when you can also start looking at more like residential programs and maybe
2: I... It, in... The difference there is that there's sort of an enforcement aspect, like you're going to be spending the night there every night, which means they can keep you from drinking. So that you can be successful for the time that you're there,
3: and for yeah, and for some from different levels of substance use problems, that becomes the, the higher level of the problem you were referring to earlier. Yeah. Like I can't not do this right now. Right, I told myself I wasn't going to do this, and I'm doing
2: it. And you actually need to be stopped. I,
3: I yeah, I need mm-hmm. to be. In an environment where I, at least for a time, it's not accessible to me, or it's not as accessible. Right. Um, I mean, certainly people have no problems finding
2: ways, but <laughs> it's it's Burning Man for addicts, <laughs> right? <laughs> so or it's your I, Zen retreat for so, addicts. <laughs> so I, hope, I mean, I hope
3: that helps a little bit along the lines of kind of yeah. what treatment looks like. And treatment, by the way, is also. Um, you know, I think traditionally it was really based on what was kind of called more like the Minnesota model, yeah. which is very hazel. And it's it's a, it's a, these are great programs. Yeah. And that's still very pervasive within the overall treatment The the notion of using the 12 step model as a way to do it. And, and I, I mean, it, look, it's, a, it's I'm a big supporter of it. It's great. Yeah. It may not be for everyone. These treatment programs have also done, a, um, I think, have done a great job of, of of broadening what the treatment scope is, how we treat it. So that becomes one tool mm-hmm. of a much expanded toolbox. And it is really important because I think when we start going down that the 12-step road, for a lot of people, there's a lot of you start bringing in issues of spirituality and yeah that just brings up a whole set of 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 issues for some people that they're like you know i'm not doing it i don't want to do it right and it's like okay well that's fine you don't need to but let's still get you help yeah and there's plenty other ways to get help
2: i think that's a nice note to end on jeff thanks so much
3: my pleasure thank you sam